Praise Jesus. Let's go to him in prayer one more time. Lord Almighty, thank you for the privilege of coming together with family. Thank you for coming together before your word. And thank you, Jesus, that you love us. And you will never leave us nor forsake us. And that promise was secured for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. And indeed, in eternity past, before the world began. Give us grace this night to hear your word and to become more and more the men and women who trust in your promises. In Jesus' name, amen. It's easy to forget as you're reading through the good news according to Matthew, as you see him healing a woman, as you see him raising a son, as you see him purifying the lepers, it's, it's easy to forget that in his journeys, Jesus had a purpose. And his purpose was to die. Jesus' mission, his goal, was his death. Now, not simply any death like a crazed frontline soldier who simply wants to end it all. This was a very particular death for a very particular reason for a very particular people. This death is the death that became a foundation, a fountain of life for all who would trust in him and in his death. As we come again to this particular time of year, the most important time of the year, as we come to the Lenten season and preparing our hearts for Easter, let's remember why Good Friday is good. And we need to remember why Good Friday is good because Jesus died to give you life. Good Friday is good because on that day our Savior died. Our ultimate hero died. Now, normally that would call for a commemoration. Yes, this was the day our hero died. But this is a celebration because what part of what made Good Friday good is Resurrection Sunday just three days later. So as we prepare for Easter, as we prepare for Resurrection Day, the day that made Friday the best of days in history, today, as we are making these preparations in our hearts, we turn to read what Jesus did. We find it in Matthew chapter 27. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Now they were ever the pragmatists, the temple leaders. And the pragmatists that they were understood that they needed to kind of deal their cards under the table because they didn't want everybody to be able to see what game they were playing. They knew that putting this hero, this miracle worker, this possible Messiah to death would jeopardize their position. 
And furthermore, Rome didn't allow them to exercise capital punishment themselves. So they needed to kind of underhandedly pass this off on the Roman dictators. They needed to get in bed with the people who really were their sworn enemies. And the passage continues. Then, when Judas his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what's that to us? See to it yourselves. I don't care. That's on you, buddy. That's what they said. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, well, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. Oh my goodness. That's about as hypocritical as you can possibly get. I, I think when you look at the definition of, in the dictionary, that ought to be the definition of hypocrisy. So they took counsel and brought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave him for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, this is a tough paragraph. I, I struggle a little bit with this paragraph because it says that Judas... He was conflicted and he even changed his mind. And if it weren't for Matthew 26, 24, where Jesus said of Judas, it would have been better for that man had he not been mourned, I would be tempted to say that because he changed his mind, because he went back and gave the money, well, maybe we'll see him in heaven. But Matthew 26, 24 is pretty clear. I don't think Jesus allows us to have that option. So, whenever you run into something in Scripture that kind of hits you as odd, you're like, huh, he changed his mind. Why isn't that good? Whenever you hit something, dig a little deeper because it may just be an important lesson. And I think in this case, it's a very important lesson. Now, we're all familiar with the person who's sorry they get caught, right? Oh, I'm so sorry. Well, you're just sorry because you got busted. I think Judas here actually was sorry for what he had done. But the difference is he didn't take it to Jesus. Unlike Peter, Judas took his own life. And I think Paul may have had exactly this event in mind when he wrote 2 Corinthians 7.10. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to life, salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces repentance. Sorrow for your sin is not enough. An unbeliever can hate their sin because it's embarrassing, because they believe it to be below them. 
An unbeliever may hate their sin because they honestly want to be better. But sorrow and tears does not produce righteousness. Though, of course, it is true that righteousness will often produce sorrow and tears. Repentance, on the other hand, is when you sorrow for your sin and you take it to Jesus. This means you accept Jesus' authority not only to stand over you and command you, command you to do something you don't necessarily want to do, but you also recognize his authority to be personally offended when you refuse to consider himself the one who is personally offended when you lie to your neighbor or you hold bitterness over someone who is near you. Jesus is personally offended by that. And part of repentance is to say, Jesus, you are right and I am wrong. Repentance means that you willingly turn from your sin towards God. And failing to do this, failing to turn away from your sin, but continuing to embrace it all the while you're crying and feeling sorry for it, results in death. And sometimes that death is a slow cancerous eating of your heart. And all too often, it is very quick. The sudden death of a hangman's noose that is tied by your own hands. And because of the death, because of Christ's death that happened as a result of this act of betrayal, it is possible for you and me today to look back and to remember why Good Friday is good. Good Friday is good because Jesus became your Savior instead of your judge. Good Friday is good because you and I who hope in the promises of God for us in Christ have hope of being received by our Savior rather than standing before the tribunal, the ultimate tribunal of the universe, and being condemned by our judge. Good Friday continues in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now, you have to catch the irony here. If, if you take a step back, this is hilarious. The temple leadership hates Rome. They hate Rome. They hate the idea that someone else is above them. They hate the idea that some other government is over their land. They hate Rome. But right now, at this very moment, they hate this carpenter from Galilee even more. They hate him even more. So they're willing to become this kind of interesting bedfellow. 
Now, Pilate is also hilarious because Pilate is concerned to appease the Jews. And make no mistake, Pilate also hated the Jews. Pilate would have much preferred to be back in Rome hanging with his peeps rather than in this rebellious group of people who are always throwing fits and just... They hated each other. Make no mistake about that. But Pilate was also very keen to please his boss. And his boss is going to be very interested that some little carpenter guy is calling himself the king of the Jews. I think Jesus was the only one who was standing there who was not filled with hatred about everybody else there. But if indeed it's true that Jesus claimed to be the king of the Jews, that hits at the heart of what it means to be a Roman overlord. They were convinced that they were God. They were convinced that they were the ones who were the king and the emperors. And anybody who would pretend otherwise gets themselves nailed to a tree. But evidently, Pilate, sitting on his throne, kind of probably had a head about him and he was thinking and he understood that these temple leaders are the real hypocrites. He understood that it's just jealousy that's causing them to want to fight Jesus. And so, at first, Pilate's not having anything of it. Ain't playing your game. Ain't playing ball with you. We're doing this my way. So let's see how that worked out. Verse 15. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And when, and they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, "Who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ?" For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides. When he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Man, Pilate was an idiot. Everybody knows if your wife tells you to do something, you do it, right? It's, <laughs> it's pretty clear. It's pretty clear here. Rome is not interested in justice. Rome is not interested in doing the right thing. Rome is interested in intimidation and appeasement. And so you try to appease them. Hey, you know what? We're nice guys. This is your most important holiday. We'll give you one prisoner. Who do you want us to release for you? That's kind of a nice thing to do. And, you know, give them a little bit of appeasement. So we hold out this carrot, hoping that if we give you enough carrots, you'll be nice. Of course, they also had a big stick, and they understood Teddy Roosevelt before he even was born. Intimidation works, but carrots and sticks together work even better. But in this case, it gets more complicated. Verse 20. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called the Christ? 
They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. Pilate didn't succeed. He tried to twist arms. He tried to argue. He tried to reason. Didn't work. Weren't having anything to do with it. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and he washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Then he released for them Barabbas. Having scourged Jesus, he delivered them over to be crucified. Now I wonder, just what do you think? Do you think God was impressed with Pilate washing his hands? Do you think that God thought, oh yeah, that works. Okay, Pilate, I'll let you off on this one. Uh, something tells me that God wasn't very impressed. And you remember a few weeks ago when we were in Matthew chapter 24, I pointed forward to this verse and noting that the judgment that was going to come, that Jesus was prophesying in Matthew 24 and came in 70 AD, 66 to 70 AD, was in part a direct response to this. Hey, we got it. Pilate will take care of his blood. It'll be on us and our children. Man, never dare God. Never trifle with God. Never think that you, with your little words, can get away from snubbing God. And another observation. Jesus was scourged. Now, some of you know I grew up part of my life uh, in junior high school, elementary school, in East L.A. And I know what it feels like to get beat up. I know what it feels like to have kids jumping up and down you and beating you up. But as bruised as I ever was, that was nothing compared to being hit with whips, with things tied into the ropes just to make sure that it you really felt it, and it really did some damage. However, I further imagine that this particular beating that Jesus was scourged with wasn't even nearly as bad as being crucified. Hung up on a cross and told you are going to die from asphyxiation. You're going to die from exhaustion and you're not even going to be able to breathe. And even if you could sort of possibly comprehend the shameful, smashing, unjust bruises that Jesus went through on that day, and you combined it all and multiplied it by a thousand, that doesn't even begin to compare to what Jesus really suffered that day. And that is the wrath of the Almighty God against every sin of every person who would ever trust the promises of God 
for them in Christ. And the movie, The Passion of Christ, could not even begin to do justice to the reality of the death of the Savior. Jesus on Good Friday bore in his flesh not merely the wrath of man for his audacity, but he bore, even more importantly, the, the wrath of Almighty God against every sin of every man, woman, and child who would ever thankfully receive the gift that God made that Good Friday. Remember why Good Friday is good. Good Friday is good because Jesus bore God's wrath for your sin when you trust his promises. And my friends, that means your sin is paid for. That means all you need to do is say thank you. The mocking and the scourging and the shaming continues. Verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put him on his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. I hate it. I hate it when people put their fingers on my sin. Any of y'all like that? Someone comes along and they point out where you're sinning. Does anybody like that feeling? Do you realize, I want you to realize that if you had been there, you would have done the same thing that they were doing. Mocking him. If you had had a whip in your hand that day, you would have been beating him with that whip. You would have been right there with the temple leaders saying, come down from the cross. Come on, show us a magic trick, Jesus. Oh my goodness, it is so easy for me to forget my sin. It is so easy for me to forget that I am this covetous, bitter wretch. And but for the grace of God, there go I, me, And I need to be reminded. There but for the grace of God go I. Continues verse 32. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. Now, I, I've always wondered about this. Mixed with gall. What, what exactly are they talking about? Are they talking about the, the stomach acid that we call gall? If they are, that takes a whole nother level of disgustingness that must have happened for them to give him this. 
that, that is, it's painful to think about that. Think about that. It's not a nice thing. But that's what it says. And when they crucified him, they nailed him to the cross. They divided his garments among him by casting lots. Ha! We're going to kill you and we're going to insult you while we're doing it. Then they sat down. And they kept watch over him there. Huh. Hey, Fred, you got some coffee? And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. They wanted to make sure that everybody who walked by could go by and they would see what this person was being crucified for. Why did this guy earn the ire of Rome? Because he claimed to be King of the Jews. Don't claim to be King because we will nail you to a cross. And the world does it today. Don't tell us that we're wrong about anything or we'll nail you to a cross. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. They didn't really believe that, but they found a good way to mock somebody. They found a good way to make fun of somebody, so they did. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, can you, can you imagine that? The chief priest, the top religious person on the planet, in your view, goes down to a crucifixion. And he, does, he doesn't go down to the crucifixion to weep. He doesn't go down to the crucifixion to protest the tyranny of Rome who is being so unjust. He goes down to mock a dying man. There's your religious leaders. He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of the Jews. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. What irony. What irony. I'm the most important dude on the world. I'm the high priest of the Jewish religion. God must really be pleased with me. Hey, if you say God desires you, let him take you down from the cross. Holy smokes. The person God desired more than anybody in the universe died on a cross. Don't let your heart say, why am I suffering like I am? God must hate me. The person that God loved more than anyone in the universe hung on a cross. And the robbers who were crucified also reviled him in the same way. Oh Lord, save me. Save me. Thank you, Jesus, that I was not there. But thank you, Jesus, that you were. My friends, remember why Good Friday is good. Jesus saved you from what you might have been. As bad as you have messed up, and some of you have messed up pretty bad, as bad as you have messed up, God has not let you become as evil and as bad as you could have been. That's something worth thanking Jesus about. And this is when it happened. 
verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let's see if Elijah will come and save him. There is a pernicious and persistent myth that Jesus spent three days in hell. And I'm not going to give you a full lecture on why that that is not true, but I just want to give you the idea that this idea that Jesus spent three days in hell is a corruption. It's a, a changing of the original Nicene Creed. And in part, it comes from this idea. But specifically, Jesus' friend John nicks this idea of Jesus spending three days. And he does it in John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine that we just read about, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. That's when he died. He's dead. It is finished. The payment has been made. And I think he's referring exactly here to this passage where we're at, starting in verse 50, and Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtains of the temple were torn in two from top to bottom. Everyone has access to the Holy of Holies now. And the rock, the earth shook and the rocks were split and the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of their tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Wow, that's cool. What do I say about that? I don't know. It must have happened. And it would have been freaky. There's grandma walking down the street again. Oh my goodness. I really do think that's cool. I can't wait to talk to somebody who saw that. I, I, I would love to hear more about that. But as we have said many times, the Bible doesn't answer our curiosity. It just tells us what we need to know. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the Son of God. The wrath of of God was spent. The price was paid. The redemption secured. No need for hell. Hell was endured already. That is why we need to remember why Good Friday was good. It is finished. You are free. Christ paid the penalty for everyone who would trust his promises. Forever. It's finished. Aren't you glad you know this? I need to hear an amen from somebody. Amen. amen. But in the meantime, the story continues. Verse 55. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Jesus, James and Joseph, and Mary, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. You can trust what you read in Matthew because it is an eyewitness account. This strikes me as very much real. 
Verse 57, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. And he went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. You can trust what you read because we know from experience and from scripture that Jesus changes even rich people's lives. Jesus can change our lives. He can change people with a lot of money and power. That strikes me as real, as honest. Story continues. The next day, that is, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how the imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Again, you can trust what you read, because this strikes me as very clearly, obviously, exactly what they would have done going to Pilate and say, hey, help us out, buddy. We need help so that we don't have something worse happen. Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing a storm, the stone and setting a guard. Now, most of you in this room remember Gerald Haley. And Gerald Haley put some words in my head that I will never forget. Good luck with that. Good luck with setting a guard over the tomb of life himself. Good luck with taking the fountain of life and trying to make him dead. Ain't going to happen. You're not going to win. So don't bang your head against that wall. I mean, think about it. Post a guard. Now, obviously, they wanted to cover their assets. And their number one asset was power. They wanted to make sure that they kept power. So they prepared for Easter by setting a guard over Jesus' tomb. Good luck with that. What are you going to do to prepare for Easter? My friends, you have two weeks until the most important day of the year to remember the grave didn't win. And so we come to this. We come to the Lord's table. And I love celebrating the Lord's Supper. Everybody here knows that. It's my favorite day each month. I love celebrating the Lord's table because it is a reminder of so much. And I, I love how every month Pastor Benji's sermons fit right into the Lord's Supper. Hmm, imagine that. It's almost like they were written by the same author. And I love how every month we are constantly reminded when we take the bread and when we take the cup, we do so in conjunction with all the Bible-believing and Christ-honoring people who have lived for the last 2,000 years. But what I want to emphasize tonight 
is what made Good Friday good? This is kind of a gross meal. This is kind of unpleasant. This is almost disgusting. In fact, the Romans, one of their chief arguments against the young church was that they were cannibals. They're eating some dead guy's flesh and they're drinking his blood. That's gross! And sometimes we need, like I said, to absorb that and we need to come to terms with the fact that what Jesus said we were doing is eating his body and drinking his blood. Why? Why would we remind ourselves of something as disgusting as that? Back to what I said a few minutes ago. To remind yourself of something very important. We need to be slapped awake. We need to be reminded that it's just not some preacher mumbling on and on and on and on. It's something very important. When you take the bread and the cup in a few minutes... You are participating in the death of Christ knowing that Easter is coming. You are going to participate celebrating the fact that Jesus died for your sins so that these next couple of weeks as we are preparing for Easter Sunday, for Resurrection Sunday, you can keep it in your mind and in your heart that Jesus died for you and you and you and me. When you take the cup and the bread in just a moment, you are participating in the greatest injustice that ever happened and the most glorious thing that ever happened, the death of the Savior of the world so that he can be your Savior instead of your judge.